Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Kelly Stewart. Hi, and welcome to episode 17 of the Think Orphan podcast, where we seek to help you navigate the orphan crisis with experts from around the world. Phil, tell us a little bit about who we are chatting with today. Yeah, I was able to have a great conversation with Sarah Chin, who's doing some great work uh, in different parts of Cambodia, particularly in Phnom Penh. And uh, that is actually where she was. She was sitting in a cafe when we were able to have this conversation. Apparently, that was the best internet she was able to have. So I really want to invite each of you out there to just sit down, close your eyes, pretend you're in a cafe in Cambodia, and really learn with me from Sarah Chin, who talks about deinstitutionalization and the issues surrounding that, talks about family preservation, talks about short-term missions and so many other things in this conversation. So um, yeah, I hope that you are as inspired by her work as I am and as so many other people are. And you can learn from a woman who has been doing this work for a long time, has learned a lot and is sharing it in ways that are real, real ways that we can learn from. She is definitely tackling the issues on a lot of different levels, and we would love to hear your comments after you listen to our podcast, and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to go to iTunes and rate our podcast. That's how uh, we get the podcast out to more and more people, and so we would love to hear uh, just kind of what stands out to you. What are you learning? What what would you like to know more about? And just share those things with us at our thinkorphan.com website or also um, on our Facebook page. So let's get to Sarah and Phil's conversation. Well, Sarah, it's great to have you here today with us. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Thank you very much. And Sarah, we, uh, you're uh, able to have this conversation with me as we were just saying. It's amazing that uh, we can do this as you're sitting in a cafe in, in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. And, uh, you know, a lot of people out there, you're doing some amazing work in in Cambodia. And I'd just love for you to share a little bit with the audience, introduce yourself to them and let them know a little bit how you ended up working with children and families there. So, uh, actually, Cambodia has been my favorite country since I was six years old. Hmm. I first heard about uh, Cambodia when I was six. My parents were reading a book. My parents were reading a book about a uh, uh, a man who'd gone through stuff during the Khmer Rouge here, and you know, as a six-year-old, I wasn't told about what they were reading about, but they they obviously were chatting to each other. My mum and my dad were chatting to each other about what they'd heard, and uh, I realised that the world was bigger than my my little like family and where we lived and school and where grandma and granddad lived and that the world was bigger and people people outside had different experiences to me and that there were children in other countries that didn't that didn't go to school and had had terrible experiences so it really blew blew open my my view of the world if you like at that point and so then after that after the age of six whenever anything came up at school I would always do a project or um do uh, you know my essays and stuff mm-hmm. about Cambodia and an aspect of life in Cambodia. So growing up through that, I managed to get uh, to uh, get Cambodia into a project for my GCSEs. I managed to get one into get sort of a an essay in there for my A levels, and I even in, managed to include it in my uh, my uh, my degree as well. Mm-hmm. And. Then I went to um, uni 
and after uni I went to Africa, as you do when you love a country in Asia. <laughs> and uh, I was working as a special assignment literacy person. Uh, it was a, it was technically speaking, it was a short-term mission, but we were there for two years. Mm. It was that short term. And uh, went to Mali and had a wonderful time and began to realize through one thing or another that I should be in Cambodia. And one of the main things was that I, I we had a big old Gestetner printer, you know, one of these big mm -hmm. hand printers. And uh, I had, because we were in the middle of the Sahel and it was very, very dusty, I had to um, collect newspapers so that when I printed something off my, in my print shop, I could keep the, um, the papers clean. So I collected all the newspapers that I could find from other people who'd, who'd, who'd been sent English newspapers and newspapers from America. And one of those newspapers was um, one of those newspapers was uh, The Guardian, and it had a job description, job jobs page in it. And at that point, I only had like six months left. I was thinking about what I was going to do when I went went back home, and uh, I saw an advert for Cambodia Action which is the organization that I'm now with. Mm. And, you know, I left it and I left it. And I left it about three months before I, before I suddenly realized, you know, every time I went to my print shop, it didn't matter what I was doing with the papers or where I shifted them, um, that advert was always at the top waiting mm. for me to look at every single time I went in. So I took the hint at that point and I wrote <laughs> to them. And two years later, I was in Cambodia. Wow, and it and it's it's uh, been really cool for me to read just about the work that you've been doing over the last uh, eight years, nine years or so. And um, can you just share a bit about the work that you're doing? It started as a thing called Project Sky, and has now uh, morphed into what what the organization you're working with now. I think it's all the same, similar organization, the same organization, but it has kind of taken on different uh, different. Uh, forms in the last few years. Can you just kind of give a, a little brief summary of that? Okay, well actually, I mean, we're, we're now Malukrasai. Malukrasai is a local, uh, local non-governmental organization. Um, we are now three years old, but we actually say that we're a three-year-old organization with a 16-year history. <laughs> Um, because all of the work that we do now continues the work of Project Sky. And all of the work of Project Sky evolved from and came out of another project that I ran when I first arrived in Cambodia called Hosea. And Hosea was, is, a, is an acronym. Cambodia is a world of acronyms. Um, Hosea stood for Helping Orphanages by Support, Education and Advice. And we spent a lot of time um, doing research into the, um, the, quality and, uh, the quality and level of care being given in uh, childcare institutions in Cambodia. That was in 2001 way back when mm. and from that we started doing caregiver trainings and training caregivers how to look after the children um, it had to improve the care that they look at you know they give to the children mm -hmm. in the orphanages because for better or worse at that point there were no regulatory frameworks um, in place in Cambodia to govern what the alternative care scene looked like so uh, we I did that, and then from that, we um, then I moved into and, and founded and established uh, Project Sky, which is another acronym, but it's Khmer acronym, 
um, standing for um, building up the lives of young adults living in orphanages. And uh, we, we started off by doing a lot of research into um, the hopes and aspirations and dreams and worries and concerns that the young people living in orphanages at that time in Phnom Penh had about their future so that we could start to look at you know supporting reintegration supporting social inclusion when they left the orphanages um, in 2012 um, we, we we got extremely um, cumbersome if you like that we had I was the project manager and I was managing by the time we we localized, I was managing nine um, micromanaging nine projects in effect, and so by localizing and becoming Malopresse, we were able to carry on the work that we were doing as Project Sky, add some more work, and restructure so that um, there was a management team and a board and lots of other people being involved, not just me. Mm. So going back a little bit to the to the research that Project Sky did and in, in, uh, in just on the studying these young people to uncover their needs, see what they were, uh, the, the good, the, the bad, the, the issues kind of with their care in the orphanage, not necessarily their care, but just their life in the orphanage and when they got out. What did, what did you find in that and how does it affect the work you're doing today? Well, okay, so... Back when we did the research, we involved 514 young people aged 15 plus from 35 different orphanages around Phnom Penh. Um, we had mixed groups, so they weren't all from they weren't all from the same orphanages, and um, and it represents about 66% of the number of young people, young adults living in orphanages at the time that we did the research. So it was very um, uh, sort of all-encompassing, really. There was a lot of feedback that we were able to get. We did it very creatively, interactively, um, high level of participation. And, uh, yeah, I mean, two of the main uh, conclusions that we were able to draw from our research with them is that children are taken into residential care centres because they're seen as vulnerable. Um, but the centres aren't taking away that vulnerability. They're, um, mm. they're delaying it or even increasing it. And the second conclusion that we came to is that in Cambodia there are not orphanages because there are orphans. There are orphans because there are orphanages. Mm. All the things that they told us and said to us pointed to the fact that they are scared to leave the orphanage. They, are, they don't have the life skills, they don't have the support systems to be able to leave and be safe um, and uh, be socially included. They are highly exploited when they leave. They are hyper vulnerable to um, exploitation, abuse and uh, actually suicide as well. Mm. Yeah, one of the one of the young people actually said to me at the time that he felt like a duck being let out of a cage, uh, afraid that somebody was going to cook him. Mm. And that really sums up the whole nature of the the, the conclusions and the the uh, results that we got from the from the. Yeah. Uh, research. The uh, we actually redid the research in 2009 with some other young people from different orphanages around the country, and also with communities as a sort of a 
uh, I know what they call it, a, a control. And uh, there, was a, there was a real difference when we did the research with the young people in the orphanages and we did the research with the young people in the communities. Some of the, some of the ideas were very similar, you know, feeling, you know, are we going to be lonely? Are we going to be alone for the rest of our lives? Are we going to be able to support ourselves? Will we be able to have enough food? Will we be able to have enough money? Will, where will we live? Those, quest, those questions and those sort of think, feelings were the same. But with the young people in the orphanages, when we asked them those questions and we talked to them, like a real blanket of doom filled the room and covered the room. It was extremely depressive. We had to be very, very careful about how we diffused them before they went home and how we held them in that. Whereas the when we asked the same questions of the youth in the community, they were very... Um, you know, it was, it was done in a fun way. They mm -hmm. were asking questions, you know, how their questions were, how are their families going to cope with them when they're older? How, mm -hmm. you know, will they be able to find enough food? And if they don't, well, they'll go back home. And it was very much lighter and didn't have this complete depression that descended on the room as soon as we started talking. Mm. So, yeah. And why do you think that was? The level of fear among the young people who are living in the orphanages, not only about their futures, but about what's happening to them and why did they end up in the orphanage in the first place? And the knowledge that the older they get, the less likely it is that they're going to be able to go home, that they're brought up to think that education is the most important thing that they should have and it will lead definitely lead to a really good job. And then growing up, gradually realizing that that's that's not a given. That just because you have a good mm. education doesn't mean to say that you're going to get a good job immediately with a good uh, a good salary immediately. I mean, one of, one of one of the questions that we always used to we we were asking during the research is, what do you want to do when you leave the orphanage? What do you want to do to uh, support yourself? And most of them will say, you know, they want to be a teacher, a lawyer, a doctor, a, a director of an organization or a director of a company. Mm -hmm. And you to say, well, what will your company do? What will your organization do? Well, no, I'll just be a director. And there's no, there was mm. no realization that there had to be steps in between. And that might, that might be an adolescent thing as well. But when you suddenly talk to them about, you know, you can't just do these things. It has to be like a, a plan. <laughs> you have to, you know, the, there's processes and, and another yeah. bit in between. They become very, yeah, they realize that they're not going to be able to depend on the orphanage forever. Mm. And the, the orphanage isn't their parent, in fact. They might be brought up to think that, you know, they've been brought up by the orphanage, that the other orphanage children are like their family. But when they get older, they realize that when they leave, that the orphanage director will not take responsibility for them, even if they have right. a problem. Right. And so they're not, they, they're not a parent figure. They can, can never be a parent figure because they're not a long-term solution. Right. So basically when they realize and come to realize that this education isn't their savior and they're not necessarily mm -hmm. going to find a job and they're not necessarily going to have this kind of dream that they've been up, raised up thinking they're going to have, there's yeah. really no family. There's nothing there to take that place of that or to encourage them in the midst of that. Is that kind of exactly. what you're finding? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, the, the, 
Orphanages and residential, long-term residential care alienates children from their family. It separates them from their society. They no longer have the skills that they need to live in the communities, and they no longer have a relationship with the people with the people who put them in the orphanage in the first place. They no longer have that that close relationship with their with their parents, with their siblings. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the orphanage might, the orphanages have uh, provided them with food, have provided with the medicine, and provided them with education. But all of these things are physical things that could actually have been provided to them in their family. Right. They didn't need to have gone to a centre for this, and the things that they needed that could have given them the stability and and and. The, the psychosocial aspects that they needed in life, the love, the hope, the the support and, and stuff wasn't there right. for them. And once they've separated from their family, it's very difficult for them as, as older teenagers, young adults who've been institutionalized for a very long time, it's very difficult for them to make the, to, to bridge the gap between, between them and their family. Right, and and and, and I, don't, I forget it, whether it was you or another organization that you work with put together a little video called "Why Not a Family" that kind of talks about some of these things and and has some children who, um, you know, were have been affected in these ways that have been yeah. some of them brought been brought into families and and so it really kind of talks about these issues. Can you can you share with the the audience how how they can find that uh, video? Yeah, I mean, if, if you go onto um, our website, www.malubrase.org.kh, or um, also you can uh, put Why Not a Family into um, a YouTube search, okay. it will come up. It was it was um, instigated by Malubrase, or at, at, at the time we were still Project Sky, mm-hmm. um, but it also involves our other partners, uh, Children in Families, and another organization called Spian. Okay. And, and so all of this work has, has led to several things. And one of those things is right now you've been working with the Cambodian government to help draft and implement an alternative care policy. Um, can you share a little bit about how, you know, what you're doing, how the process got going, um, how you got around the table with the Cambodian government and, and really what, what policies are coming out of it? Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> our, excuse me, our, um, my relationship with the, the, Cambodian government goes back to 2003 actually. Um, as I said before, when we did Hosea, there was no regulatory framework to govern anything that was done in alternative care at all. You could open an orphanage for any reason um, and you could be anybody at all and nobody could stop you. So there were literally orphanages opening to sell babies mm. and there was, there was no, no way of stopping them because there was no regulations. So in 2003, I became um, involved with a, with a group which was um, writing minimum standards for residential care at that point. And um, we, we were endorsed by the Ministry of uh, Social Affairs, Veterans and Re- Rehabil- Youth Rehabilitation in um, into, at the end of 2003 so that whatever we wrote would go to them and they would uh, look at the draft and ratify it as, uh, as an official guideline 
um, for the ministry, for the for the government. And so um, we worked on that. I the, the government made me the um, vice chair of the committee that was drafting those minimum standards. We drafted minimum standards for. Um, all types of alternative care. So there's one set for residential care and there's one set for family-based care. They were um, officially launched with the policy, which I was also on a a separate committee to help to draft, um, in 2006. And then they were relaunched in 2008, because in 2008, the government set up the Department for Inspection and Monitoring of orphanages and residential care and alternative care according to the minimum standards and so they relaunched everything um, in 2008. And so it's gone from there really. We've also been involved in um, helping to draft and um, edit the, or uh, let me get this right, the um, minimum, the guidelines and standards for the care, protection and support of orphans and vulnerable children. We are also part of the drafting of the implementation plan for the policy on alternative care. Uh, We were part of drafting the strategic plan for orphans and vulnerable children uh, 2013 to 2018. Mm. We were also part of drafting the uh, code of conduct for child protection and we're also part of editing the um, minimum standards for the management of residential care and we are also involved with actively involved in helping the government to implement a minimum uh, a uh, monitoring evaluation system for orphanages or orphans and vulnerable children so we're very very uh, invested in what the government is doing in alternative care in Cambodia right and and uh are those available for people to be able to look at as examples and as kind of templates and, and of, of what they might be able to do where they're at? Absolutely. They're, they're, everything is online. Everything is online. You just need to know the name to be able to, um, to access it. Um, if people want to email me, I can send it to them or okay. we can put it... We, I can, uh, if we've got somewhere to where we can put links, for example, then I can I can send you a few links. Yeah, we we'll, we will be able to put it's those not, links on the yeah. on the show notes for this oh, for this episode, and we can put your email address and the and then the the links as well, so people can get in touch. And because so, I'm sure that that's something that a lot of people out there are looking for examples, are looking for you know what are some you know minimum standards, but also. You know, what, what are we shooting for? What are we striving for? Yeah. And what does that look like? And, and I know one of the things that we've talked about, you and I have talked about, and with several others as well, is talking about deinstitutionalization is one of the real goals, you know, in a, in a lot of these situations. You know, there are places where these children can go into, into real families, whether it's their own biological family to be reunified or into adoptive families or foster care or things like that. What does that look like? What, what does deinstitutional look like in Cambodia today? Interesting question. Um, because of all the, um, there's a lot of policy, there's a lot of guidelines, um, and they've been actively working towards monitoring uh, residential care. So back in 2012, it came to light that 72% of the young people living in orphanages uh, have parents. Um, and for the vast majority who, who who don't have a parent, um, they have family that they could go to. Um, and that the, the children currently institutionalized in Cambodia 
uh, are not there because they are orphans, but they're there because their parents, for the most part, although they're poor, they they were telling the researchers that they were sending their children to orphanages for the educational purposes. They either didn't have um, schools around their areas or they didn't in, in their villages and so we're sending them um, as quasi boarding schools if you like or they didn't have money to be able to pay for their children to go to school and therefore they were sending them so that they get a free education mm-hmm. for the most part that's what that's what they were saying so it, it sparked the, the government's um, interest in um, how what does that mean how do you get children who should be at home, back home. And so in 2012, there was a, uh, the uh, inspection team went to uh, an orphanage, the government inspection team went to an orphanage and it was, the orphanage was so bad, so bad that they were left with no alternative but to immediately close it down. Mm. And it's not something that they had ever done before and it's not something that they would usually want to do, but they were put in a position where they had to close it. There was no option. So the children and their carers were all taken to the government orphanage in the area. And we were brought in, the Mlupase was brought in as um, technical advisors to the government in doing a practical, on the job, as it goes, uh, set of guidelines on how to do reintegration. And so um, there were a lot of issues that came up. It was, you know, think of something that could happen within an orphanage. It happened. Mm. Um, we had court cases, we had kidnappings, we had, oh my goodness, we had so much in that six months. Um, but at the end of it, we had a very rough draft of a set of step by step guidelines on how to reintegrate, how, how to. Um, reunify families. So we make a distinction between reunification and um, reintegration mm-hmm. because at that point we were not um, provided with money through the government by UNICEF to do any of the monitoring of the placements that we did. Mm. So um, we, we, it was a step, step-by-step guidelines on reunification, family reunification. Now since then the government has gone on to close a lot more abusive, um, neglectful orphanages that have had court cases against them. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been able to rescue quite a lot of children. We we do um, we haven't really talked about what we do as Malabrese, but Malabrese has um, emergency foster care. So the the 80% of the cases that we receive um, in our emergency foster care are actually placed by the. Um, the Ministry of Social Affairs um, and their children who've been rescued from abusive orphanages. Mm. And then we work on their reintegration and their family reunification. Um, So at the moment, the government has um, an objective, a goal, if you like, that from now until the end of 2016, they want to reduce the numbers of children living in orphanages by 30%. Mm. So this is this is their goal. Now, how you do this, they're, they're also very, um, uh, very focused on do no harm. Mm. 
So there, so we're all trying to do this and using um, best practice right. and case management and all the proper things that you should put in place. Not we, what we don't want to see is orphanages being closed down, um, children being sent home with no due process and no monitoring because right. that will just put children at risk. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's a whole different conversation that I wish we had time for today. (laughs) But I know that there's resources out there and on on your website as well as some of the other ones that we've talked about on this show that we can talk about those things. But uh, on that, on on the talking about the orphanages and, you know, you said that, you know, Cambodia doesn't have orphanages because they're orphans, but orphans because there are orphanages. With that being said, though, is there any place for orphanages in our world today? I do not advocate the automatic closure of all residential centres. We are going to end up with cases that, as a last resort, they're going to need residential, long-term residential care. It's it's not what we call them. It's what they look like from the inside on, from the eyes of the child, through the eyes of the child. Mm -hmm. It needs to look like family it needs that even residential care needs to needs to look and feel and be like a family if it is absolute last resort for the child there are always going to be emergency cases that will need temporary um, help and and a residential case has uh, care has a has a place there but I think the days of these big huge mm-hmm. like places with 90 children and five caregivers is very definitely numbered and should be over. Right. And when you say looks like a family, is that a, is that a sheer number thing or is that uh, like looks like the typical kind of biblical mother, father, children in a home? What, what do you mean by that when you say looks like a family? <laughs> I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> um, I mean, families are... A different. I was looking. I, I was looking up. I knew you'd ask me that, so I was looking up. What What does it say in the in the guidelines? And it, it, it definition of family and all the guidelines that we've written. It includes biological parents of a child, whether one or the other or both. Mm-hmm. Um, blood relatives of the child. Um, aunt and uncle, cousins. I mean, we live in a in mm-hmm. Cambodia, so we have extended yeah, right. family. Um, legal guardians, so foster families, mm-hmm. foster parents, in in what, however that looks like, and um, you know the permanent parent-child relationship that's created by court-approved um, adoptions. Right. And you know those that are those the um, foster care, obviously, and the kinship care in Cambodia. There. They're um, governed by the minimum standards, so we would have to follow the minimum standards for those. So they have a certain age limits on, uh, and uh, and um, you know what type of family they can be, and whether they have the means to be able to do the care and the training and all of those things. Right. Um, of course, when we do reintegrations and we get children back into their homes, we don't just find the trace the families and place the kid. We uh, we do assessments on on the families. We do we go to the village chief, we go to the neighbours, we go to the local authorities, and and find out more about the family and their situation. Right. So we have to follow 
assessments. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, obviously for adoption, there's the uh, international adoption law in Cambodia and they're working on a domestic adoption law. Right. And so what a family looks like in Cambodia um, depends entirely on, on the guidelines of which under which those different types of families are governed. Right. If you like, we, we, you, there's no one like uh, model for a family. It doesn't have to be sure. mother, father. There's, there's so many different types of, of, uh, of fam, what family, family is, sure. there's no such thing as a normal family, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, would you, would you have, like if someone were to call you and say, hey, you know what, we have this place and we've tried to, you know, empty it out as much as possible into great families in the neighborhood and the communities. But what would your suggestion be to that person calling you on how to best make it resemble a family within the context of that residential care uh, facility? So they would need to know what... My answer would depend entirely on whether they were Cambodian or whether they were foreign. Mm. I mean, if they were if they were Cambodian, then they know they know for themselves what a Cambodian family looks like, Mm. how they work. You know that you have lots of people in the same rooms and and uh, that that um, you know the, the different setups that different. The different types of families would have. Then, if it was a foreigner, I would I would have a completely different way. You know, I would I would ask them to be asking the Cambodians and look, using their eyes and finding out what Cambodian families look like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on the ground. You, what you don't want is like children being brought up in a in a in an environment that's that's something that they're not going to be able to recognize when they leave the orphanage. I mean, if they're, if it's a foreigner, then maybe we would think, well, you know, we have to have, uh, you know, each of the children need to have their own bedroom because that's what families do. And each right. of the children uh, need to have this or the parents need to do that. No, right. it's different. Right. Family, the concept of family is very different according to different cultures. Sure. And, they're being they, they the children have to be brought up in in the culture that they're that they're part of and they're going to need to be part of and yeah right which is a great unintentional segue into the next question just about uh i know this month uh, actually rebecca knapp who was on the show a few episodes ago um had a, a blog kind of month month uh, daily blog on orphanage tourism and the kind of the ills of of short-term trips and kind of the some of the some of the problems and issues that, that arise from them, um, you know what what about short-term mission teams and talking about the foreigners coming in? Is there any role for them in the context of orphan care or poverty alleviation, family strengthening? Oh gosh, so just an easy question is, yes, towards the end of the just a nice easy question, right? Um, I mean, I I've already said I I started off my my professional life, if you like, as a volunteer, as Mm -hmm. a short-termer. Although back then when I was a short-termer, the short-term missions tended to be months long or a year long. I was was a short-term, on a short-term mission team for two years, and that was considered short-term. Now, these days, that's like a long-term contract, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, things have changed, and when I think back to the stuff that I did, they back in Mali I mean it wasn't it was completely it wasn't related to the stuff that I'm doing now at all really right. but you know we were chosen post 
graduate and we were doing stuff that we'd already been trained in and they spent three months training us some more in literacy and um, stuff. So we, although we weren't professionals in the area that we went to, we had knowledge and we were given the knowledge that we were going to need to go out and do the work we did. And so, you know, a two-week mission coming to Cambodia and expecting to change the world for children by playing with some children in an orphanage is, is misguided. Mm -hmm. um, they can do a lot more harm than good and um, you know the, the whole the whole thing of you know when you go into an orphanage and all the children running towards you and hanging off of you and that that is a is a real um, sort of a, a, a signature of a reactive uh, attachment disorder. Children are not supposed to right. do that with foreigners. If my, if my children, if we had somebody, a complete stranger knock on the door and my children ran towards them to hug them and hold their hand, I would be horrified. Right. It's right. not normal behavior. You would expect your children to sort of stand slightly to the, behind you or hold your hand. Mm -hmm. And, you know, knowing that you are safe and this is somebody who they don't know. Mm -hmm. That is normal behavior. Right. And so, you know, you often get the, the, the um, short-termers will come in and say, oh, but all the children loved me being there. They all hugged me and they just wanted to hug me and sit on my lap. When you think of the children you know, you realize that that's not normal behavior. Right. And that that is being, uh, constantly being uh, reinforced. That behavior is being reinforced with every new team that comes in. Right. And these are children that have been, you know, I've talked to them as they've got older, the older ones, when you talk to them, they, they will tell you that they don't understand why they were abandoned to the orphanage in the first place. Right. You know, they, they, they feel abandoned to the orphanage. The fact is that most of their parents wanted the best for them and wanted to send them to the orphanage because they get a good education or they would get enough food that mm -hmm. they didn't feel they were able to give. Right. And the parents were thinking of it as a positive thing. And so they're already, there's already children with issues and then you add in constant turnover of foreigners, you add in a constant turnover of caregivers and basically children who were in no way emotionally um, uh, in no way emotionally disabled or had, had emotional or psychological difficulties and now in the position where they do have emotional problems and de uh, delays and developmental issues simply because of this constant changeover of, of uh, caregiver. Right. And so that is a that is a huge problem and that's not even going into the whole, um, you know, orphanage abuse issues mm -hmm. that we see on a daily basis. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a whole lot of issues. Obviously, we're not able to get into a lot of them, but you definitely touched on some of the issues that we need to be aware of when, when uh, you know, churches are planning trips to orphanages and and whatnot. That that there's a lot of a lot of damage can be done. And and I you know and I I can say that I I fell into that same misunderstanding. You know, back in the day when I first got involved with this work and I went to visit a place uh you know in a, in a different country and yeah and i got there and i was telling everyone how great it was because the kids came up and they were so well adjusted because they came and gave me hugs and and then i thought exactly what you said i thought that's not what my kid would do 
my kid would be grabbing onto my wife's leg, peeking around, looking at this stranger, mm-hmm. wondering, is it, are they okay? And looking at mom for guidance. And yep. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, there are things that you can, that, that short-term teams can do. There are things because, you know, obviously we're an organization that works with youth. We're well known for working with uh, orphanages and young people who have been rescued from orphanages. We've got emergency foster care and all of this. Um, so we have different things that we can offer to, to volunteers with different skills. So right. if they come with professional background mm-hmm. in social work or a professional background in youth work, then um, they can we can offer them positions or, or tasks that they can do that will support the local teams to be able to strengthen the work that they do on the ground. Right. So, right. so we do a lot of, we have them doing trainings or we have them helping to do, to invent tools for, for training on and, and that sort of thing. Right. Um, for the, for the younger people who haven't got the experience or they haven't, they haven't got the professionalism yet that they will need to do that in the future. Um, we save things like, um, uh, helping the organizational support teams do the inventories and the stock taking. Right. You know, um, we, we've had teams in who've, uh, we, we do what we call welcome packs, which are like, um, uh, Backpacks that've got soap and a torch and a towel and a, all the things that young people will need when they come out of an orphanage with nothing, right. um, or they're thrown out or they're rescued. They come out with nothing, so we have something that they can then own that is theirs that they can use for themselves. So we've had um, teams come in and pack a year's worth of those. That takes a, a, a good few days in itself. Um, as part of Malobrase, we have a policy that no one will be taken to visit an orphanage and no one will be taken to visit uh, emergency foster care. Mm. And basically, I mean, a, a short term is not going to get enough language. Even right. if they're the best social worker in the world, they're not going to be able to get enough language to be able to do the case management jobs on the ground. Right. Right. So let's just leave those to the local experts. Absolutely. And, give help and support to them in the place where they feel it's needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so to train the, the people doing the work to help them to the extent that you can encourage, mentor, yeah. you know, those type, those type roles, right? Exactly, or act, you know, or, or uh, you know, uh, practical, practical right. stuff. We had one, one, one person once um, go out into a community and she spent the entire day picking the stones out of an old lady's rice mm-hmm. a, a blind lady's rice mm-hmm. brilliant job right. no one else was going to do that right yeah absolutely practical stuff that can be done yeah that absolutely. doesn't do any harm yeah and I've always said that you know you build a relationship you come in and build a relationship and with the context of that relationship you'll know what what the fit is and you'll know whether it's a fit or whether you know exactly. you should just stay home then you know the next time and but it, but it comes in the context of that relationship same way you know the con- context of a relationship with your neighbor in wherever you live in the world you know you wouldn't exactly. just show up at their house and say hey I'm going to start working um, you also wouldn't go pick up their kids and start taking selfies with their kids you know you get to know them in the context of that yeah hopefully you wouldn't do that um, but in the context of that relationship you'd really be able to know okay how can we help each other and that's really kind of the idea okay so Sarah as we're finishing up here um, we'll ask the last couple questions we ask everybody Um, so first what have you read listened to or watched in the past few months that has most impacted the way you engage orphan care so I, I was thinking about this question and 
you know, I've been in this arena for a very long time and for a huge amount of t- a huge amount of time many many years it was a very lonely place there weren't any wasn't anybody else banging the drum to get children out of orphanages back home stop opening orphanages don't don't rely on orphanages as the first priority and the only option let's help families let's strengthen families it was it has been a very lonely place and just this last few months um there has been uh, there have been like the the World Without Orphans uh, conference yeah. in Chiang Mai. There were hundreds of people in the room, mm-hmm. all all banging the same drum from yeah. different areas of the world, and suddenly the world wasn't quite so such a lonely place anymore. Mm. Um, mm. You realise that you're part of that. Your voice has become bigger. Right. Over the years, there have been more people joining, and the same goes for all. The, there's been a whole load of stuff um, being put up on on social media, um, on the, the whole issue of vol- uh, orphanage volunteerism, mm-hmm. and it's been really encouraging to me as somebody who's been working relentlessly towards this right. all these years. Um, that suddenly there's so many more people who are suddenly on board and understand and want to see the same thing and so that has been a real encouragement um, yeah. this year yeah really absolutely no, I've been very encouraged by all of that as well and uh yeah, so hopefully we can continue these conversations and continue to help each other know that we're not alone and be able to collaborate, work together. I know that you're a collaborator as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, so um, on that note of collaboration and other people impacting you, what one living person has most impacted your work in caring for orphan and vulnerable children? Actually, he's, he's no longer alive, but he was until a couple of years ago. That's okay. Ago. You can go with that. You can go with that. <laughs> he was alive one? in the last decade. It was so, alive in the last decade. Okay. Um, when we first, very, very first, went to the government in 2001 to get permission to do the Hosea research, when we before we'd even started any of this stuff, nobody in the government was hinting at anything, no, nothing. And um, we went to get permission to do the research. And we met with this particular His Excellency, and he was called Doj Samon. Mm. And... In the course of our conversation, he said it's all very well wanting to provide uh, services to orphanages, but please, will you consider finding out where the children have come from and find out ways of sending them back home? Mm. And over the years, I've looked back at that and thought he was so on the ball, so uh, cutting edge. He wasn't even, we hadn't even got to that point. Um, at the point of getting to reintegration we hadn't even got at that point we hadn't even got like regulations and minimum standards for the for the for the residential care centers and he's talking about already deinstitutionalization back in 2001 and so you know i really wish that he could he was still alive so he could come and see what we did with what he said yeah well that yeah that's it's encouraging. It's encouraging to hear how he was able to impact you and will continue to in the legacy that's left there. And I know that we all have those people in our lives. Mm-hmm. 
Well, thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you uh, for your time. I'm, I'm, I'm glad You're that we were welcome. able to uh, meet a few months ago, and I look forward to everyone um, listening in, hopefully to be able to meet you someday, whether it's in Cambodia or elsewhere. Um, yeah, if it's in Cambodia, you'll make sure that they're doing it right. I know that. Absolutely. So, um, but uh, hopefully we can uh, continue this conversation real soon. Yeah, no problem. There's so much more that we could have could have discussed. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> let's make a date. <laughs> <laughs> well, once again, that conversation was just chock full of information that I know we can all be using and will hopefully and likely inform our work that we're doing um, all around the world to love these children in ways that... Um, that really do, you know, do as our goal is always to do way more good than harm to these to these kids, and and you know, I just want to continually be thinking about those things, and I know that Sarah makes me think about those things when I talk with her. Um, so and and Kelly, we've talked about a couple things, um, in particular the short term mission question and. Um, I don't know, question the issue in the issues surrounding short-term missions. And so what, what do you hear from Sarah about that? And what, what, what have you been thinking about that issue? Well, I think number one, a lot of people are, you know, it's nearing the end of summer have probably either been on a mission trip or maybe are debriefing or thinking about it. And, you know, just how I think we go into it with really great intentions and we want to do something where we're serving people and we're serving um, the the place that we're going. And so I think Sarah brings up some really great points of, you know, our goal being that we want to be a help and we do not want to hurt. And, you know, these, these little kids have been so traumatized, so, you know, mostly that's the case. And so having uh, just the mindset of protecting those kids. And so that may mean that you don't do a whole lot with direct contact with kids and just having that perspective of if we're, if we're serving, we want to serve in a way that is beneficial, not in a way that can over, you know, a period of time harm a child even more. Yeah. And this is something that is so real on so many different levels. And it's not just the kids, you know, I mean, yeah, obviously the kids, we need to be very aware of that, but there's other things that we can do. And I just talked to somebody the other day and and it was really just the conversation of, um, they said, yeah, we're going to send a team over to a certain city and they're going to go into this new building that they just got and, and paint the walls and get it all ready to go. And I just said to him, I said, why don't you not send the team? and send money or, you know, send, you know, encourage them to get resources in the town, which will allow for collaboration with other organizations or other people, get other people involved in that ministry and potentially provide jobs um, or ministry opportunities for people in that particular place, all the while saving a whole lot of money and time from these other people. Now, if there's an express purpose for those people to go over and they paint in the midst of that, that's a different story. But there's some tremendous um, opportunities for um, a partnership and there are some great resources out there on how to do trips and do these and, and I think short-term trips is probably not the right term to use and I think there's some great resources even on that issue Craig Greenfield who was one of our guests early on um, had a great article the other day which we'll, we'll uh, link to that just as far as what we should be calling them and just his his thoughts on that and I thought it was a really a really good uh, little blog post that he, that he did on that um, speaking of resources Kelly I know that uh, we've been talking about different things that we read with our children 
children and uh, resources for them. And, and I usually learn probably as much or more from these books than my kids do. Um, but, uh, you know, what are some things, uh, you know, outside the classics that we have all probably heard of? Um, and if you haven't, I encourage you to read them like Chronicles of Narnia um, for some of the older kids, Lord of the Rings books, if you, you know, can can handle the descriptive nature of Tolkien. Um, but uh, what are some other books that you've been reading with your kids that are that are great resources for them and, and for you? Well, one of the books that we've been doing in our kind of family devotional time is called The Ology. And it's basically a systematic theology that's geared towards kids. Um, and so it's just a very basic looking at who is God, who is Jesus, you know, what is sin. And so just uh, in, in a very beautifully illustrated book, it just takes kids through those really basic um, doctrinal theology beliefs and takes really big words and kind of puts it in their language. And so that's one of the books. I, I love it. And then um, some other things that we've done is uh, just autobiographies of, of missionaries. And so it's, I think it's Christian, oh gosh, it's something then and now, like ancient Christian, I don't know. Anyways, it's that I just totally botched that. <laughs> That's okay because we're gonna we're gonna go to that mm -hmm. on uh, the show notes and whatever it's actually called, we will we will link to it. Yes, and it will be good. Something like Christian Heroes then and That's now it. or something That's like it. that. Christian yeah, Heroes then and now. That, uh, we've, we've probably both have them on our shelves. Yes, but, uh, yes. Yeah. So those are some great ones that that we have tackled. Yeah. And so, you know, I look forward to reading, you know, some more of those with my kids and, and with also with the children that we're working with, as we've talked about, discipleship is such an important part of all this work that we're doing. And so speaking of discipleship, I know that that next week's guests, I was able to sit down with Andy Lehman, Lehman and I said Lehman on that one too. And, and his name is actually Lehman. So when I say Lehman next week, just remember it's Lehman, but he will be on the show with us. And uh, it's a really good interview, talks about discipleship talks about some other issues. So um, look forward to that. Look forward to you joining us then. And I also look forward to hearing all your questions and comments um, that you might have that you can be sending those in. So have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening. And we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan. Thank you.